0: from uh, junior high boys, most people probably haven't read this story about the Battle of the Kings. I only say that because I remember it was one of my favorites when I was in Sunday school when I was a a young boy, and and yet it's it's a powerful, important, and interesting account. It's unique. Uh, It's the first time in the Pentateuchal narrative that the word war is used. And it's the first extensive description of a battle. And that will happen a lot later on in the Old Testament, but it's the first time we have that. And it's unique because in its portrayal or perspective of Abram the patriarch. Most of the time, whether it's Abram, Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph, the four main patriarchs in Genesis, most of the time they are certainly portrayed as men of peace. And yet here we see Abram as a man of war. And so that's unique as well. And what, one of the things we see that's happening in the text is that Abraham is emerging, after having received the covenant of God, Abraham is emerging here in history as a leader among his cultural peers. He is emerging as an equal to the kings and chiefs around him. That's one of the things that happens in the text. There are three themes often work their way through uh, the narratives of the Old Testament, particularly these Pentateuch or Genesis narratives. We talked a little bit about them last week. There's a theological theme, the moral theme, the Christological theme. Oftentimes, the emphasis is on the moral themes, and I think those are important, but that is not usually the int- the, the primary intention. and not the moral theme. What we mean by that is theological, what we're saying is, well, what's God like? What's God doing? What's what's going on with God in this text? A moral theme is more, well, what's what's man doing? What's happening? Good and bad, or things to imitate things he should do or not do? And the Christological thing I think is pretty obvious is where's Jesus in this text? How do we he see Christ here? I just want to encourage you that the reason that Pastor Taylor mentioned that we'll be in there for the next two weeks. Is that we're going to completely ignore the Christological theme in this text. The reason we're going to do that is because next week it's going to be the entire center of the whole sermon. And you probably already, in hearing the story read or reading it yourself, recognize that name Melchizedek. It wasn't about a few years ago we went through the book of Hebrews and, and taught on this. We want to revisit Melchizedek and the pointing to Jesus Christ in that in the sermon next week. So we're not going to deal with the Christological theme today. There are some moral qualities here that I think are important lessons. We see Abram's bravery and courage to faith. That's good. But always, in the text of Scripture, this is God's revelation. This is His self-revelation. The primary intention in the Scripture is for God to show Himself to us. And that's where the theological theme becomes the most predominant theme in all of these sort of stories. While it is good for us to ask, ask the question should I act like Abram here? It is better for us to ask the question, how is God better than Abram here? That's a better approach. And we'll do both. So how do you preach a narrative like this? When well, you tell it like I think Moses intended. You're not going to read it again. Instead, we're going to tell the story of the battle of the five against four armies. These are the days of mighty warriors, tribal kings with deep lust for power, for gold. Four kings in the east Amraphel of Sinar, Ariach of Elisar, title of Goitny, and Tedor Laomer of Elam. His kingdom is stretched further east than even this map can show. And it becomes very evident in history that Kedar la becomes the mighty, invincible king of the East. The king of kings, rising above all these other nations. For twelve, and, and the five kings of the West that we'll read about are Bera of Sodom, Bersha of Gomorrah, Semember of Joboim, and of the king of Bela, that is Zoar. For twelve years, the West, suffered under the hand of the east, under Kedol And in the thirteenth year, they rebelled from his oppressive authority over them. They refused to pay his tribute. They refused to be taxed by him. And so with a brutal fellow force, Kedol Amor and his four and three other kings, they bow together and they make the journey all the way up through the fertile crescent from these regions, working their way, gathering strength so they might launch an attack down on these rebellious five kings in the West. Their brutal campaign spares with itself with no mercy. The Rephaeans of the North, Rephaeans, that's the word that's important. That word means giants. In fact, it will be the Rephaim that the nation of Israel will be, will be afraid of that will keep them from even possessing the land of promise. But the Rephaim of the north, they do not even stand a chance The invincible Ketaleoma. He decimates them. And continues his brutal march southward, down through the Saba Kira the Valley of the Kings. And he brutalizes and he burns and he kills them and plunders. Even the Horites in their mountain of Seir are no match for him. As they fall one by one and these four kings decimate and burn to the ground and destroy along the way. They go all the way down this further south into the deserts of El Paran, As far south as you can get, they're out in the middle of nowhere. And then they shot around through Kadesh, another important place. Because that's where the children of Israel wander for 40 years, waiting to get in. He pivots through chaos and hits Hazes on Tamar, which, interestingly, is where the kings of the West have chosen to make their final stand. And so in this valley of Sedim, the Salt Valley, the base of the Great Salt Sea, four against five, we have the Battle of the Mighty kings not much of a battle. Invincible ketel decimates these five kings. Bera, Bersha, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and their allies. It's so devastating that the kings and all around run into the tar pits near Engedhi. What are the tar pits here in Getty? They are dangerous caves and false ground and you fall in and there is, it, it's just a very, the are to take their chances in the tar pits and it, they don't make it, many of them. They are succumbed to the elements. And the rest hide themselves in the caves of engedi on the uh, western shores of the great salt sea. There's nothing left in the city, no protection. And so with the last Kedileomer, he takes everything. Men, women, children, goods. And he begins his return back north to the valley of the King's Highway, to the Valley of the Kings, away after having got his tribute in blood. But Kedeleomer made a life-altering error. He didn't even know he was making the error when he made it. One of the insignificant citizens of Sodom just so happened to be the nephew of the servant of the Most High God. Lot. Abram's nephew, who when we last saw him was looking towards Sodom and now seems quite content to live in Sodom, which we were previously read last week, the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah equaled the wickedness of humanity prior to the great flood. Lut is for Perhaps drinking celebrating, rejoicing, raping, and pillaging these kings and their mighty army head north. they won after all. One of the slaves that was captured, he escapes from Chateleomer's army, and he runs with speed to the western side of the Jordan River to a little town called Hebron to a man who was making his tent under the cherubim trees of Mamre. A man who had made some friends there. Mamre himself being one of those friends. And Mamre's brother at Eskel and on air. And this place runs in and, and I'm assuming that one of Abram's servants says, you've got to hear this, Abram. You've got to hear what's going on. I wonder if Abram said that the kings were here and they decimated these things? I know. Everybody knows about them. No, no, you don't understand. They got lost. I imagine flashed to the cross. Abram's eyes. Get the boys. Three hundred eighteen, trained from childhood in his own house to be experts with weapons and tactics. Three hundred eighteen. They saddle up. like us and so, Abram and his 318, and Hesco and Mamre and, and said, hey, we were not in on, we on this. You're, you're, we're with you. So they gather up there, and they ride. And the Bedouins, the ones with tents under the oak trees, are going to go get back what's, what's been taken from the invincible Ketorleoma, who the referee, remember, stood no chance. The giants stood no chance before Abram the Hebrew, the text says. I like the ancient way of pronouncing that because it, it has a sort of a, a Lord of the Rings ring to it. Uh, Abram the Habiru. That's how they used to pronounce it. Uh, Hebrew, Habiru, a, a word that was not used by Jewish people, by Israeli people. It's actually not an ethnic distinction. The word actually, Haberu, was a Canaanite word uh, that meant um, slave, foreigner, marauder, pirate, that kind of idea. And this is the first time in the scripture it designates the word Hebrew or Haberu. Because you see. It's going to be Abram the Haviru, the Marauder, versus ketel the Invincible, the King of Kings. But ketel the Invincible doesn't stand a chance with Abram the Haviru. So Abram saddles, saddles up in his men and they head north up to Dan. And there they will encounter these mighty kings and their victorious armies. It's nighttime, so Abram divides the forces and they ambush them. So resounding is the defeat that the text tells us, the story tells us, that Abram and his men pursued Kedola Omer all the way to Damascus. Syria. That's way north of where our mass over was. So did isn't just I thought once Heneleamor surrendered and gave up and began to run, Abram and his 318 boys said, uh uh-huh. it's you done. You'll never be here again. And they decimate the King of Kings. So he thought he was. And so we have in our text the defeat as a hobby the Nobody. On their way down back from the north, as they came down to the valley of the king, Abram and his victorious army, small army, but victorious, they're met by a couple of people. So the first guy that meets him is the coward who finally decided to come out from the caves in Engedi. You know, the guy that had abandoned his entire city and all the women and children and everybody? Let the or have them. We're hiding. He comes out. Abram! Welcome back! But another individual, another king, right next to the valley of the king, who had kept himself aloof from the old situation he comes out to greet Abram as well. You've got Bera, the king of Sodom, who comes out to greet Abram. And you've got Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who comes out to greet Abram. Now this is what, actually the, the heart of the story focuses then in on this greeting, this meeting with these two kings half of the story told is this wonderful battle and victory and the other half is this meeting in the Valley of the King that took place. Moses wants us to think of this meeting as the most important part of the story. Now it's interesting, you can contrast these two keys in the text and it's quite fascinating. Melchizedek, which means it's Malach and Sadek. Righteous King, or the King of Righteousness is another way of saying that. The Righteous King. He's king of a place called Salem. That's, a, a derivative, uh, that's the Hebrew word Salom. Peace, the king of peace. You've probably also heard of a city called Jerusalem. This is that same place. Now, it's not occupied yet by any Israeli people. That's occupied by this guy, Melchizedek. He's the king of it, but it's the place that becomes the center of God's universe. It's the city of peace, the peaceful place. Either prophetically or the name was given later. sadam means burning. In the third Lot Abram story, we'll learn a little more about the burning that is Sodom. So you have a contrast. You have the king of the city of peace coming out to greet Abram. And you've got the king of the city of burning coming out to greet Abram. This Melchizedek brings a banquet. He brings out a gift for Abram. Bread and wine after all. Will these men not be hungry and tired? Will they really not need refreshment? And he brings out this bread and wine, bread and wine, a very traditional meal given to people. It's not that it was unique or unusual, but it is also luxurious. If we could put it in a modern sense, he didn't bring them peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Okay, He brought them a banquet, is the way that phrase is used in Hebrew. So he brings out a banquet. However, the first thing that Sodom does when he comes in Greece, Abram, he says, Give me my people. So the first words coming out of Melchizedek's mouth are, Blessed be Abram. The first words coming out of Sodom's mouth are, Give me. Now, it's not that that was an unfair request. I think mean, it was a very fair request. There were people, the ones that he hid from in the cave. But you just to contrast there. And of course, then, the people and what they're doing themselves... Melchizedek is identified in our text as Priest of God Most High. That's quite a title. Yes, for God Most High, but be the Priest of God Most High? That's amazing. What is Vera known for? Well, he's known as overseeing the foulest, worst, most wicked city everywhere. You could say, he's the Priest of the Damned. He's the one who is overseeing the burning city. So there's a contrast there. And the biggest contrast I think that you see is Abram's response to them. Abram responds to Melchizedek and his blessing by giving high to him. Abram, the one who's just won the battle, the one who's weary, the one who's lost, approaches Melchizedek and continues to give to him. Whereas his response to Sodom, we read it earlier, is from a thread to a sandal lot that I want nothing from you. You refuse to take anything. He says, we've already eaten some stuff, we've already had some stuff on our way back, obviously, that's the guy's right. And my brothers who came with me on air and Esco and Mamre, you know, they can take what they want, but me, I want nothing from you, king of Sodom. Isn't that kind of a very expressive way of putting it that we read? From a thread to a sandal strap. Not one little thing do I want from you. So the rejection, the whole target and wholesale rejection that Abram has for the king of Sodom and the warm Embracing that he has to Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, is very central in the text as the chapter continues. Significantly, I think that final contrast helps us see a little bit more about Abram. And as I said before, he's acting a little more patriarchal here than he has previously. But he will not lean on Sodom. He will not lean on Sodom. He will not trust in Sodom. He will not be enriched by Sodom. But he will give to Sodom. But he will serve Sodom. He will trust God to bless him. Neither war nor wicked keeping will be how he is enriched. That is an act of faith in and integrity, really, is it not? I think this answers the question... It was previously asked that we asked last week when we were looking at the first story in Abram Locke trilogy. Will riches destroy Abram? We saw that affliction in Egypt and famine did not destroy him, but rather changed him. But remember what the Prince of Creatures said? Affliction has slain her thousands. Prosperity has slain her ten thousand? the dangers of the prosperity and luxury, the dangers of winning, and yet Abram stands with faith in God. No. It answers the question. Will, he, will the prosperity, will the advantages, will the success that he is experiencing lose his gain from the God who has covenanted with him? The he is no, he won't. So what are the lessons that we are supposed to take from this? What are we supposed to do with a story like this? Well, this is just a side note. First of all, this is cool. Right? Isn't it? Isn't it awesome? I was talking to my boys about this. The Bible is, is very fascinating. I think Lucas told me this. He was like, yeah, oh, makes a great movie. Yeah, except for how I would all mess it up. But it's pretty, pretty fun, right? pretty interesting. Wow you see this, but I don't think we're supposed to come from this and be like, that was fun I wish I could have seen the water, you know, I don't think that's our point um, but there are some applications here, the first one I would suggest is to the first audience but in other words, remember, the scripture is written um, not to us, but for us today it's written to a specific people who would read it in that culture in that time and then it's for us, meaning we then glean from it as well so who were the first audience who would read this? Well, in the, in the writing of Genesis in the Pentateuch, we believe this was written probably toward the end of, um, after the Exodus, probably in the meantime between the Exodus and the end of the wilderness wandering is probably when this was written. So who are the people that are reading this? They're the people who are in Canaan. They're the people who know that have been delivered from Egypt, just like Abram just came out of Egypt in the last chapter. They've come out of Egypt. And now... Their faith with the invincible Rethayim. They see the grace of Eschol, but they also see the giant, the Rephaeim. And they don't want it. They don't believe they can do it. They don't believe that they can actually take what God has given to them. And I believe that there is an intentional purpose in Moses writing this text for that first audience, essentially. Say to them, if Father Abram, the Habiru, can defeat invincible Omer who made nothing of the Bethany, remember, why can't he do it now for you? If you can do it with one Habiru, what about thousands of them that have just come out of Egypt? Can he not do the same? By the way, that's where we get the word Habiru. That's most often written in outside biblical sources in uh, some things called the Am- Amara Tablets uh, and uh, it's kind of funny it's that that's really a lot of basically letters that preserved letters, archeological letters preserved that are writing, a lot of them are writing from Canaanite cities and Canaanite kings writing back to Egypt asking to send help because of the Habiru who were marauding their cities What's funny about that is they never hear any reply from Egypt, and we kind of know why. <laughs> They'd already lost their armies in the Red Sea, right? and so that's where actually the word "hobby" finds its most in the, most oldest mention. It's, it's all these little hobby room running around. Look at them coming out of Egypt, hitting all these problems. We have our we have ourselves settled already in here, and they're afraid. And they look back on the story of Abram, and they say. The mighty five forces of the East who decimated the things you're now going to take could not stand in the face of the servant of the Most High, Abram Mahabira. He's with you. He'll take you in. He will fulfill what he promised to you, just like he did with Abraham. And this wasn't even Abram possessing the land. This was simply because that guy messed with the wrong kid. That's all. But I think there's more than just the first left audience lessons. There's things for us from the text. Obviously, as I said, the Christological, we will look at that next week and look at Hebrews 6 and 7. The moral lessons. Remember that these three stories, the trilogy, one of Moses' intention is to show the contrast between Abram and Lot. Abram being the um, quintessential wise man from Proverbs and Lot being the fool from Proverbs that's sort of how they're contrasted there Lot actually isn't really in this story, is he? and yet he's actually the kid that the whole thing hangs on yet we don't see anything about him but there still sort is of a the contrast there Lot, remember we looked at last week he sought to secure his future and now he is enslaved whereas Abram trusted God to secure his future and now he's rescuing And I think there is a simple lesson in that contrast. We must not allow the pragmatism of Sodom, of the world, to contaminate the principles of the word, of Salem. must not, and I think churches to hear this loudly and clearly. We don't need to try to please Sodom. We have the blessing of Salem. Also, Abram is very heroic. Faith enabled him to reject Sodom and embrace Solemn. But I want to focus in on the theological lesson. Because Abram's heroics tale in comparison to God's sovereign provision. How did the Habiru defeat the invincible king? Melchizedek tells us how. Melchizedek tells us how it works. And it wasn't because he got him on the drop on the ambush. And it wasn't because they had superior forces, because they didn't. And it wasn't because he divided his forces and split. That's not why, because Melchizedek tells us. He says this, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven, and, earth. and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. The tells us why Abram and his three hundred eighteen young men could defeat Ketulomer, the invincible, because God Most High delivered them into His hands. That's how. It's actually quite simple. God Most High, the first of the compound names of God to be found in the Hebrew book, Genesis. El Elyon. Not a God of comparative degrees, not God higher, but God of superlative degrees. God Most High. Not that there is a pantheon of deities And God just so happens, the God of Abraham just so happens to be a little bit stronger than the God of Tadolammer. But there is only one God, the superlative, who is most high, because he is called the possessor of heaven and earth. Remember in Genesis, heaven and earth, that's a euphemism for the universe, for everything. Why is he possessor of everything? He made everything. He sustained everything. He has all rights and authority over everything and everyone. There is nothing that is being, that, that nothing that is outside of his days and his hands. And there is no one. Abram Habiru grabbed his 318 boys and he went up north to try to head them off and he's doing all this work. But every step that are made along the route, God Most High was marching and watching. God Most High delivered him into Abram's hands. He owns everyone and everything. He acts according, he gives according to his wisdom and desires. So, according to the good counsel of his own will, and so the lesson is simple: react appropriately. We want to react appropriately to El Yon and the description here in the text. Well, how did Abram react? Is that a good uh, kind of way to go down to well, How should we react if we're that reactive? How did Abram react? The one, who received the blessing of the priest of the Most High God. And then he gave tithes of all that he had, had had received. I think this is funny because what it sounds like in the text, and I don't know if this is entirely accurate, but it sounds like it to me, is that he gave him the tithes of all the spoils that they had taken from from Ketel-Emer, which means <laughs> he, he tithes, some of his tithes that he gave was Sodom's stuff. <laughs> he gave a tithe, ten cents of everything. It says so. Therefore. Um maybe the king of Sodom was a little irritated with that, I don't know. Now this is in his sermon on tithing. The principle that Abram responds with worship. That's how response to the most high God. Not with seeking approval of look what I did, but let me give. Let me serve you, Melchizedek, the representative of the Most High God. Let me serve you. You act with humble worship. Furthermore, this is why he is empowered and enthralled to take nothing from the kingdom of God. You see, you don't need... Bottom, where you have Solomon, you don't need it. Got to put it another way: you don't need all that this world promises. that it will be burned up anyway. When you have Jesus and New Jerusalem descending out of heaven, when you have the peace of God, you don't need. The approval of the burning of men. You don't need it. You see, Abram doesn't reject Sodom because it wasn't enticing. because it wasn't good stuff. He rejected Sodom because he had bread and wine from the priest of Salaam. Because he had the blessing of the priest of the Most High God. He didn't care for the applause of the king of gods. You see, we have a priest of the Most High God. We have a priest who is sent from El Elyon, who meets us when we are weary, when we are broken when we are sinful. And He brings us bread and wine. I think He brings us a broken body and blood. And He says, blessed. You're blessed. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You're blessed you're adopted. You're chosen in love. you been predestined. You're redeemed. You're forgiven. You're justified. You're right with God. You're right with Most High. You have the peace of Salem because of the priest of the Most High God. You have this, and not only that, but but soon Salem will come out of heaven. And the city of peace will depend on this earth. And it won't just be something we know we have by faith, so it something we experience in practice, in touching, in feeling, in smelling, in singing. And Abram was looking for that city in color you have all of that, beloved? You are blessed in every spiritual blessing. why do you need the same of the products? So why do you need the approval of the culture around you? Why, why do you need all this stuff that soon is going to become Fast, Why? Why do we need to enrich ourselves now when we have the riches of sovereignty? Why do we need to prove ourselves Holy and righteous and good, when we have the righteousness of our priest who has included that already to us. Can we not simply just worship? Can we not simply just respond and say, You are king of whom? To the priest of the In other words, better to lose those things that will burn up now. And to have peace with the Most High God forever. There's an old song. simply says, Take the world, but give me Jesus. That's the concept. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Redemption is better than reputation. The approval of Christ the King, the righteous King, is better than all the applause of Solomon's King. See, when one after him, that the righteous king of Salem has eternally blessed him and spread a banquet of grace before him, he has no need and loses delight in the treasures of this world. And so we can say, with the Apostle Paul, so I'm sure Abram would agree, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Put to death, bottom. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness of idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, you which you yourselves once walked when you live in them. And therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercy, Come to them. Kindness, humility, meekness, long suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone ever a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God be in your heart. which in one the word of Christ. The give the blessing. The word of blessing, the word of Christ, can we fix the whole wisdom? Can one the word of it.